hey, has anybody seen if the camel is here yet? The camel is out there. Okay, well, it seemed fitting, since we have a camel on the premises, that maybe we should talk today about something related to camels. So uh, in 1857, the Reverend John Henry Hopkins composed the famous Christmas carol, We Three Kings of Orient Are. And this song, along with other characterizations over the centuries, has led to our most basic understanding of these guys. So I thought we ought to begin this morning with me giving you a little test to see how your knowledge is. So here's the first question. Who were those guys? Larry Curly Moe, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, Malkor, Baltazar, Gaspar, Gaspar, a wink and blink and nod, none of the above. Somebody thinks it's C, okay. Okay, well, let's go on. A, yeah, there's definitely some fans in here. Um, where did they come from? The Orient, Fertile Iowa, South Dakota, Persia, Babylon, a distant galaxy far, far away. Some of you have already been dipping in the eggnog today. Um, how many were there? Three's company? Eight is enough? A baker's dozen, 300, none of the above. Okay, I don't know how you're doing here. Um, when did they arrive? Christmas Eve, Christmas Day, Pentecost, months later, Columbus Day. I know some of you are still thinking. Okay. Uh, the way I want to approach the subject of the wise men this morning is to pose several questions for our examination of these guys. Uh, the first question is, well, who were those guys and what were they up to? Now, first of all, there are several reasons we know that these were men, not women. To begin with, if the wise men had been women, they would not have arrived many months after Jesus' birth because they would have stopped to ask for directions. And had the wise men been women, they would have been there to clean up the mess so Jesus wouldn't have had to be born in a barn. Finally, had the wise men been women, they would have brought much more practical gifts like a casserole so the family had something to eat. So let's just face it. We know who they are. In the song we sing, We Three Kings, they're called kings, but kings they surely were not. Now, we read about their story in Matthew's Gospel. So if you have a Bible, want to grab it, turn to Matthew chapter 2. If you want to grab a Bible in front of you, page 1016, Matthew, in his Gospel account, chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2, look at verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. Now, these men are called wise men, or you might have a footnote calling them magi. It comes from an ancient word, magoi, which was used to describe a group of people who were skilled in things like science, agriculture, mathematics, history, natural medicine, and the occult. They became the most powerful, most influential group of advisors in the Medo-Persian Empire and later in the Babylonian Empire. The word magi is a Latin word from which we get words like magician, magic. So these folks are well trained in the arts of astrology and astronomy. 
they, they studied the stars and the heavenly bodies, seeking to discern the meaning of life and trying to understand the events of life as it related to people in the world. Matthew says they came from the east, but the east here doesn't mean China. It's not the Orient, as the song says. Uh, they were most likely either from Persia, which is modern-day Iran, or from Babylon, which was modern-day Iraq. This is probably where they originated from. And they've been studying the heavens when they saw a very unusual situation, and that is a bright star. Now, there's been a lot of people over the centuries that have tried to think about, well, what was this? What was this thing that the Magi saw? Some suggest that it was a unique planetary alignment so that it appeared like a very bright star. Others thought it might have been a lunar eclipse. Still others thought that it was a comet that these wise men had observed. But here's the problem with all of those ideas. It didn't act like an alignment of stars or a comet. Uh, you know, it, it just didn't fit that. It appeared, and then it moved toward Palestine, and then it stopped right over Bethlehem. In fact, what Matthew says here is it is settled right over the house where Jesus was. So it doesn't seem to fit the pattern of those other suggested phenomena. So what was it? To be honest, I don't know. Uh, but let me ask you this. Why couldn't it have been some supernatural creation of a star? Or maybe the supernatural use of a star? Maybe God just borrowed a star from its normal place and spiced it up a little bit and then sent it to guide the Magi to Bethlehem. If God the Holy Spirit could come supernaturally upon a virgin such that she would conceive the Christ child, is a special star really that hard to imagine? I don't think so. If it was just a natural, albeit unusual, phenomenon, why wasn't there a whole bunch of people that saw this thing and then followed it to Bethlehem? So those are just some of the things that you have to puzzle over when you're trying to figure it out. What I think is remarkable about these guys is when they discovered something that was very unusual, something very special, they did something about it. There, there was a receptivity, a, a curiosity. More importantly, there was a decision to investigate. And so they prepared for a journey about which they had no idea of its outcome, destination, or duration. So look at the question that they ask of Herod. It's in verse 2. These men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when, he rose, when it rose and have come to worship him. Now, how is it that they would have connected this star, whatever it was, with this idea of the birth of a king? Well, it's very possible, and in fact, it's very likely that these men studied ancient prophecies, including even Daniel. Daniel, if you recall, was a teenager when he was deported from Jerusalem to Babylon after Jerusalem was conquered. And God prospered Daniel and his commitment that he would be untainted by that pagan culture, and God caused him to become a very influential person in the kingdom. Daniel wrote his prophecies 500 years before Jesus was born. 
and in chapter 9, he predicted the Messiah's coming. He even gave a timeline. He said that 483 years would separate the issuing of the decree to be able to rebuild the city of Jerusalem and when Messiah would be born, lived, and died. And the Magi would have had access to this data to show them exactly when King Cyrus gave the decree to rebuild Jerusalem. They just added 483 years to that, and they knew that this was the general time frame within which Messiah would be born. They knew when, they just didn't know where. But it made sense to them to go to Jerusalem and to inquire of the Jews about the birthplace of this king. Now, we sing about how many magi? Three. We three kings of Orient are. We always see three pictured in paintings. We see them portrayed in pageants. We, we see them displayed in nativity sets. In fact, one of my favorite Christmas memories of growing up, we lived on a country road and across the road lived an elderly couple, Otto and Bernie, and they were like another set of grandparents to us. They never had any kids. But every Christmas at the beginning of December, Otto would set out this magnificent nativity scene that he had made. And there was always those three guys sitting on those three camels that were right there. I, I can picture it in my mind today. The biblical account, though, gives no number of these wise men. Later traditions spoke of three because of the gifts that are mentioned, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. 600 years, 600 years after Christ was born, somebody named them. Named them Melchor, Baltazar, and Gaspar. But there's no biblical evidence of that. You can call them whatever you want. Now, the other thing to consider is that these men were going to travel a long distance. They were going to travel about a thousand miles. They knew that, that they were going somewhere in Israel, so they had to plan for a long and difficult journey on foot and on camels. And their route would have taken them through dangerous territory. Uh, filled with problems of nature and bandits that would be there. It's most likely that they formed up a caravan. That's the way that most people travel distances. And caravans usually had as many as 300 people or more in them. This is probably how they're making their way over to Israel. The biblical record does not indicate whether the star appeared before Messiah's birth or after his birth. Because a trip like this would take several months. I'll just illustrate here in the Old Testament book of Ezra. Uh, chapter 7, we have the account of Ezra traveling from Babylon to Jerusalem. And verse 9 in that chapter reads this way. For on the first of the first month, he began to go up from Babylon. And on the first of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem because the good hand of his God was upon him. So it took four months in the best of travel conditions for him to make it from Babylon to Jerusalem. We don't know how large his travel group was. That also would affect the speed of travel. I mean, it really makes it sound like four months was a pretty good clip. Now, I suspect that the star appeared before the Messiah's birth. Why do I say that? Well, it all has to do with timing. So if you would just hang with me here on an R-square-T, a relevant rabbit trail for just a moment. John 2.20 says that when Jesus attended the Passover in Jerusalem, 
and through the money changers out of the court of Gentiles, the temple had been in the process of being built for 46 years. We know that Herod began to build to rebuild the temple in 19 B.C. So that means that we can date that Passover in John 2 to the spring of 27 A.D. You with me? Jesus' birth and, and baptism happened a little earlier there. So maybe, maybe in December of 26 A.D. Luke 3.23 tells us that Jesus is about 30 years of age at this time. Therefore, he must have been born sometime in 5 B.C. Forget the 0 B.C. A.D. You know, he probably was born in the year 5 B.C. And so that gives us a period of time between mid to late 5 B.C. and the beginning of April that next year as the time frame within which the Magi arrived. Now, I doubt they got there any sooner than 40 days after Jesus' birth. Because remember, at the conclusion of the 40-day period for purification, according to the Old Testament law, they had to go to Jerusalem and make an offering. What kind of an offering did they give? A poor person's offering. I don't think they had gold, frankincense, and myrrh to cash in. So that means they had to arrive there. And they had to arrive before the death of Herod, which we know from history dates in 4 B.C. So you see how history just helps us to place these things here along the way. Anyway, the Magi make their way to Jerusalem. So why that layover? Well, let's go back to Matthew's account. Let's read the story. Let's look about this stop that they make. So chapter 2 of Matthew's Gospel. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. And after listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. The wise men arrive in Bethlehem. They're on the caravan. And then they begin to ask around, where is this new king that we've come to find? I suspect they're talking to various authorities, people who were wise, people who had knowledge, people who had understanding. And obviously it created quite a stir in Jerusalem. And word quickly reaches the palace of Herod. And so he summons them to meet with him. Now, who is this Herod? It's important that we know a little bit about him. He was born in 73 BC. His father was Antipater II, a Jew, who was appointed to serve as governor of Judea by Julius Caesar. Herod, his son, was appointed king of Judea by Mark Antony, 40 BC. And after a three-year civil war, his power was never again challenged. 
Historians consider him an effective but ruthless ruler. He was an insecure, jealously driven man who even had his wife and three of his sons killed because he feared that they were going to usurp his throne. He was married at least nine times in order to strengthen his political base. But during his 33-year reign, he carried on extensive building projects, including rebuilding the temple. But even this didn't endear him to the Jewish people. Here's part of the problem. Herod was an Edomite. That is, he was a, he was a descendant of Esau. So he was outside the line through whom would come Messiah. And he's in power only because the authority of Rome placed him there. When he died in 4 BC, his remaining three sons inherited the rule of the kingdom. One of them was named Herod Antipas. This is a fellow that Jesus will have interaction with during his whole time on earth. So Herod summons his own wise men, the chief priests and the scribes, and, and he asks them what's going on. These people knew the Old Testament scriptures. They knew the prophecies. And so they told the king of the prophecy of the prophet Micah that the place where the Messiah would be born would be in Bethlehem. And armed with this information, Herod then summons the Magi to a secret meeting. Interestingly, he inquires only about the time. See, he wanted to know the timing of this thing. And in order to secure their cooperation, he makes this dubious statement, go and find this king, and when you have, let me know so I can go and worship him. So they go. What, happened in, what happens in Bethlehem? Let's go back to Matthew's account, verse 10. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. It, it seems evident that the star was not visible throughout the journey. It appeared at the beginning of the journey, and now it appears once again over the house where Jesus is, right there. And they're overjoyed once again that the star was visible. Several things we should note from these three verses. First of all, Mary and Joseph are no longer in a stable. They're in a house. We don't know when accommodations became available, but probably as a lot of the other pilgrims that had come into Bethlehem for the census have now left town. So now they can move into a house. For whatever reasons Mary and Joseph remain, we can't be sure except that this is obviously God's plan for them. Second, as soon as they entered the house, they saw Jesus, and their response was to fall down and worship him. I think it's interesting that there seems to be no disappointment in these guys. I mean, this king isn't, isn't in a palace. He didn't look like a king. There was no scepter in his hand. But to the Magi, he was the king of the Jews. I think God must have put this certainty into their hearts and minds, that this was the king of the Jews, and they worshiped him. Remember that the word worship means to ascribe worth or value to someone or something. And so what they're doing is they're ascribing to Jesus the honor, the recognition that belonged to a king. The third thing we see is that they brought these gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Gold, one of the most precious metals in those days. 
We often see it in Scripture in connection with royalty. Uh, the second is frankincense. Incense was used in the Old Testament tabernacle and, and the temple by the priests. It gave off a fragrant order. It became a symbol for the divine name of Jehovah God and also symbolic of the prayers of God's people ascending to heaven. Myrrh is first mentioned in the Bible as an ingredient in anointing oil. And so when you read the accounts of the dedication of the tabernacle and the temple, there's an anointing with this oil. It was also used in embalming the dead. And so it came to symbolize suffering and death. In this case here, in its usage, it becomes a prophetic symbol of Jesus' suffering and death in connection and identification with people. So think, look, look at how amazing this is. Gold pointed to his majesty, for he's a king. Uh, frankincense pointed to his deity, for he is God. And myrrh pointing to his humanity, for he was destined to suffer and die. But think for a moment, if you're Mary or Joseph, what in the world is going through your mind when these guys come in with these gifts? I'm wondering if their minds wasn't racing back to the messages that they'd heard from Gabriel. And now they're saying all that God told us from the angel is true. It's true. Well, we have to ask another question. Who missed Christmas? Here are the big losers, Herod and the religious leaders of the Jews. Apart from the shepherds, the only visitors mentioned in the biblical account is a group of wise men, wait, wait for it, Gentiles. Gentiles. The scribes and the chief priests knew the scriptures. They knew more than the wise men did, but they missed it. They were filled with knowledge and supposed wisdom, but they did not have a heart to seek out the truth. How disappointing. Three things that characterized these wise guys. They were driven to understand the spiritual reality behind the physical manifestation of the star. They were persistent in their search. This wasn't an easy journey. This, this was difficult, but they made a decision to follow it to its end. And third, they believed they would find the Christ, the King of the Jews. Think about this. The wise men traveled a thousand miles in search of the Christ. Herod and the religious leaders wouldn't travel six miles to seek him out. God's still in control of history. Look in the text at verse 12. Being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they, that is the wise men, departed to their own country by another way. And God intervenes and he warns these guys that they need to now follow off and from that vision, they need to not go back to Herod. They need to split. Verse 13. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Herod is so filled with himself. 
He's so jealous of his position, of his power, of his authority, that this child king was a major threat to him. And he did a treacherous and dastardly thing. He ordered the death of every child up to the age of two around Bethlehem. Now, we know from the population of that area this day that that probably involved 15 to 20 children being killed by Herod's troops. Herod dies shortly after this. And then God brings Mary and Joseph back out of Egypt, and they settle exactly where prophecy said that they would, and they settle in Nazareth. Prophecy fulfilled. Well, let's wrap it up by talking about an application. What, what will your Christmas be like? So here's my question. Will you experience a wise men's Christmas this year? Or will it be more like Herod and his wise men? Will you be a God seeker this Christmas or a self seeker? Herod's all wrapped up in himself. It's all about him. He can see nothing beyond himself. It's so easy, isn't it, to become all wrapped up with everything around Christmas, all the trappings, all the trimmings, and yet we miss the meaning of Christmas and the response that God wants from us at this time of year. The wise men worshiped the Christ child, the king. Will that be your pursuit this year? Will you make it your priority this Christmas to know this king of the Jews, this Christ? They came bearing gifts. You see, worship will always cost you something. It'll cost your time. It'll cost energy. It'll cost your focus, your affection, your attention. It'll cost yourself. What gift does God want from you this year? What gift can you bring to him this Christmas? Many years ago, and it sticks in my mind, I watched a children's Christmas musical. The scene was that the wise man brought gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh to present to the Christ child. And then off to the side stood a young boy with open hands, empty hands. And then they sang this song, Me, my gift is me. All I am, all I'll ever be. I'm not ashamed for the world to see that it's me. My gift is me. Here's my challenge to you. If you've never given yourself to Jesus, trusted in him for salvation alone, would you consider it this Christmas? Talk to God. That's prayer. Tell him that you want to know him. You want to know if this story is really true. You, know, you want your sins forgiven. You want eternal life. And if you've already done that, if you've already given yourself to Jesus, then seek him afresh this Christmas to see him anew, uh, intimately. Uh, see him uh, that you might know him even more personally than you do today. See, every one of us is going to have to choose, what do we do this Christmas? What is our Christmas going to be like? Will it be like Herod or will it be like the wise men? Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for this wonderful gift that you've given us. And we pause at this time approaching Christmas to be mindful of this wonderful gift, a gift that would eventually end up uh, with Jesus dying for us, that we might know you, that our sins might be forgiven. Lord, may the truth of that ring in our hearts today. Might we want to know you better, or maybe for someone to know you intimately and personally. God, would you allow us to be seekers of you this Christmas? And we pray all these things.